the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It is the Seth Leapson Show. I am Seth Leapson. Welcome back. It's a delight and privilege to welcome back as well one of my favorite public uh, intellectuals and academics, Professor Wilford Riley, who is a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, doing all kinds of great works, author of several important books, including Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And he is now the co-author of a brand new working academic paper titled Which Police Departments Make Black Lives Matter, Which Don't, and Why Don't Most Social Scientists Care? Professor Riley, thanks for joining us, as always. Well, thanks, as always, for having me on the show. You betcha. Uh, In the introduction to this working paper, um, let me quote your words to you. In part via skillful use of social media, Black Lives Matter has become, in caps, has become among the most influential social movements of the past half century with support across racial lines and considerable financial backing. You pose the question, will this translate into public policy reforms that actually save black lives? You went through all the literature and you found what, Professor? Yeah, what we found was pretty interesting. So myself and a couple of colleagues, uh, Bob Moranto and Pat Wolf at the University of Arkansas, along with Maddie Harris, who's one of the top grad students there, we were interested in whether the Black Lives Matter movement had accomplished anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us have at least some background in the business world. I mean, we were curious. I mean, this had gone on for a couple of years. I mean, this is, the movement has raised about $11 billion total. So what happened? Are the police shooting dramatically fewer people, for example? The only person we could find who'd done any research on this really at all, this particular question, was Roland Fryer, always an ace researcher at Harvard. So we looked at the entire BLM literature, and we found four or five things. I mean, first is a standard critique from the right and the center, but uh, BLM focuses almost entirely on police killings, they ignore other murders, they ignore other crimes. But more to the point for this paper, we found that most social scientists have followed the lead almost of activists on the left. So they've studied Black Lives Matter as a political movement. You see article headlines like, how did they mobilize in the streets? Did this affect black voter turnout? There's been almost no discussion of what makes police less likely to shoot black people or indeed working class white people, Hispanics, Italian-Americans, whatever else. Um, There also isn't a lot of writing about what distinguishes high-performing police departments from, you know, more poorly-performing police departments. So what we did was create a metric. This was mostly Bob's work, honestly. But we essentially, we ranked a police department's effectiveness by looking at how low the crime rate was kept, basically divided by the number of civilians, especially unarmed people, that were, that were shot by the police. Mm-hmm. So do you keep crime down, and do you do it without a lot of, a lot of gunfire exchanges with the citizenry, obviously? It's a pretty, pretty standard baseline there. And what we found is that there really are distinctions between high-performing and low-performing police departments, and that the high-performing police departments aren't always the ones you might expect. 
Uh, so New York City has had a reputation as a high-crime city since the 80s, but we found actually that they're down well under 400 murders a year in most years in the Big Apple, quote-unquote. The police fairly rarely uh, shoot citizens. The lowest-performing police departments that we found were mostly in sort of Blue cities would be one way of describing it. Cities with the municipal corruption problem. I believe the worst was Baltimore. Uh, Kansas City had some issues. But there were specific things, like really penalizing officers to get more than two complaints from citizens, that that seemed to correlate with reductions in that kind of police-citizen violence. So this is, again, if you Google, you know, Maranto and Riley, you'll find it's a 20-page, you know, wonky statistical paper. But the key things that we found are, BLM doesn't seem to have had any effect on police violence, and most of the research about the movement kind of looks at the things leaders said, for example, Patrice Talors, rather than how you stop police violence. And stopping it doesn't seem to be all that complicated. You take a few rogue cops off the street. Yeah, the literature here, I guess, goes back, the scholarly literature you and your colleagues uh, went through goes back to... I think, if I'm right, somewhere around 2015, 2016, about when the BLM, official BLM movement, started in and of itself. You you just tell me whenever I get something wrong, Professor. That's that's my best understanding and memory from the paper. Since 2015, since – yeah, let me do it that way. Since 2015, 2016, and then again – from the renaissance of it in 2020, have we seen improvements on these scores of protecting black lives, or has it been stagnant? Has it been flat, like education scores? Has it, or is it hard to say as a general matter, and you have to look at individual cities and departments? Well, what we, what we can say is that the kind of non, I won't even say non-scholarly, the kind of non-mathematical, non-business-like approach that we've seen uh, has had two results. There's been very little change in police violence, but there's been a big increase in crime. So the, this focus on kind of the, the photogenic activism has led to almost, almost the worst of both worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in, in virtually every recent year, there have been about 1,000 people shot by the police, fatally shot by on-duty law enforcement officers. And to see that, all you have to do is Google Washington Post Police Shootings Database. This right. isn't some some hidden academic right. secret. So there's, right. there's virtually no drop. There's a very slight drop as an honest guy in unarmed shootings. I mean, I think in 2015 you had about 30. Oh, this is just black Americans. So there's no drop when you look at everybody, actually. But the the big surge, uh, that, or the big change that we have seen has been the, the absolute surge in crime. So in 2020, we saw 20,000 homicides for the first time since 1994. And looking at that uh, preliminary 2021 data, I mean, we probably saw 20,000, 21,000 homicides again. So to me, as someone who writes about crime from kind of that center-right perspective, we're again seeing one of the most obvious findings in the social sciences, which is that when you pull back police and you don't really let prosecutors enforce the law, you get more crime. That is a real thing, after all. It was once called, was it once called the Ferguson effect, I, I think? Well, I think it's been called a lot of things. I mean, it used to be called, you know, white flight and black flight and the Uh big city effect going back to 1967. I mean, we've consistently seen this sort of idealistic view of the criminal justice system, that people don't trust the justice system at all if it ever makes mistakes, that the way to reduce crime is community policing, treating criminals as fairly as possible, banning things like chokeholds and so on, sort of loosening the 
standards in the justice system. That, that's not a new idea. That This sort of, quote-unquote, George Soros stuff, in fact, goes back to the mid-1960s. Miranda, Escobedo, uh, Gideon, you know, fruit of the poison tree. Sure, sure. The police make a mistake. Exclusionary rules and all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, without getting too blah-blah-blah about this, I mean, when you saw, between 1963 and 1993, every one of these measures took effect, you saw crime increase about 500%. That's so fascinating. He, That's fascinating. The exclusionary rule has led to actual more violence and more crime. But all it's all of this stuff together. I uh-huh. mean, what you what you to me the one variable, and I, I don't write exclusively in criminal justice. I'm sure there are people that will disagree with us on sort of technical grounds. But to me, the one thing you would look at is kind of the number of stops made by good cops, like the number of police stops that don't result in a civilian complaint. I would bet correlate at like 0.9, with reductions in the crime rate. Generally what you've seen when you've seen a big challenge to kind of the criminal justice process is a bunch of things together, like reduced police stops, reduced sentences, prosecutors refusing to charge certain things. Um, I mean, obviously everyone by now accepts Miranda rights, free lawyers for defendants. So those were radical ideas just 60 years ago. Right. But so on down the line, like the more protections you have – the lower your risk of ever going to jail or being hurt or killed for committing a crime, the more crime you're going to see, I think. So we're, we're again, experimenting with something that we've we've tried over and over in the past. So the Ferguson effect was a reflection of that. 1960s effect was a reflection of that. And I, I bet you could go back further in the past and find, find similar things. I, I've got to take a break in a moment. Uh, do you have time to stick with me a little bit or do you got to run? Yeah, sure. Do not. No, I, I think this is hugely important. Again, let me uh, let me just give out the uh, long time. The, the people can Google or search Wilford Riley. They all my audience knows knows you and your work well. And what what police departments and Black Lives Matter is that the best way for them to to find this paper? I can I can give a site online, but I don't think people. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. just if you Google Riley uh, Maranto M A R A N T O and B L M, I mean you'll find it. it it's a uh, Getting quite a few downloads, yeah. I mean, mostly in the academic community, obviously, but I, I welcome as many just sort of smart citizens looking at this as possible. Well, I want to look at it a little bit more with you, uh, or at least talk a little bit more uh, about it with you on the other side of this break, if I can. Professor Wilford mm-hmm. Riley, no stranger to this audience, professor of political science at Kentucky State University, author, author of several other books, uh, is the author of this new working paper, uh, what, Which Police Departments Make Black Lives Matter, Which Don't, and Why Don't Most social scientists care. We're going to pursue all of that further when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. Our guest is Professor Wilford Riley, uh, professor of political science at Kentucky State University, who, along with uh, colleague Robert Maranto and a few others, two others, uh, is put out a paper, an academic research paper, which police departments make Black Lives Matter, which don't, and why don't most social scientists care? On that last question, Professor Riley, you guys went through a lot of academic literature. You reviewed a lot of the academic literature. And you found it wanting, as I understand, and as I read the conclusions here. What? What? How do... How do you know when someone is reading rot? How do you know when you read these papers, these 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 fancy named titled papers and fancy named journals? How do you know that um, uh, you're you're reading something that is just not connected to actually making Black Lives Matter? 
when you read through all this literature? Is there a consistency of bad themes or is there a consistency of a priori conclusions? What's your what's your general sense of, of the review of the literature? Well, I think that's a great question, the way you phrased it. I mean, those are those are both potential mistakes in social science. But I think that the very simple answer is you can just look at what someone's researching. Mm-hmm. So when, and this is this is something that I think is a broad, important point, kind of a wonky one, but a serious, important point. When you look through the BLM literature specifically, what you see is a lot of writing that doesn't seem to have much to do with the controversial main questions around Black Lives Matter. Uh. And again, I, I find that myself, Bob, Roland, once again, there are people that are answering Roland Fryer. There are people that are asking these questions. But like the obvious question of Black Lives Matter would be, do the police shoot black people more often than they shoot similar white suspects or defendants? And we've known since about 2016 that they don't. So, I mean, you could say bluntly that that, that almost invalidates the movement. We can, we can campaign against police violence, but let's, let's move the racial stuff, the the tribal stuff out of it, I mean, in that case. Um, you know, the people, if you look at Fryer did his study in Dallas, I mean, the people that are most likely to be shot seem to be poor whites and recent Latino immigrants. If you read between the lines there, I don't, I don't have any trouble believing that's true at all. Um, but, but at any rate, so that's the main question. Are the police disproportionately shooting black people? Then second, you'd probably have me and Bob and Patrick's question, which is, well, what, what police departments do well? Uh-huh. If we're going to hear... If we're going to hear about this, what, which departments aren't shooting people? What we found is that many people who were kind of skilled scholarly researchers, these weren't idiots, but seem to be intentionally looking at these kind of tertiary, you might say, questions like, did Black Lives Matter get black voters out? This kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't just want to ramble on and on, but there's, there's kind of a, another one-sentence point about this. You see this a lot in social science. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of the idea, you, you want to publish things, you want to make the world better, and you want to get tenure, but you don't want to stir up Twitter mobs. There's certain questions, anything to do with IQ, for example, yeah. that a lot of people just don't want to talk about. So very often just obvious questions aren't asked. Um, like there's a guy named John Ogbo, who's one of my favorite social scientists of all time, brilliant Nigerian guy. He wrote a book where he looked at the entire social science literature on why black kids, and by the way, also Southern whites, athletes, why certain groups of people do more poorly in school. There are all these theories from genetics at one extreme to it's all racism at the other. And he literally just asked people how much they study. Like, that's the whole book. He looks at Shaker Heights in Cleveland, and he finds that how much you study for tests predicts like 90% of how well you do in school. Um. Why has that question? Why was that question so rarely asked? Because you get into tough questions. You get into making the point that black people, on average, study less than whites, and that white jocks, often quite popular and well loved in their schools, study less than Asian kids. And that they're they're big moves we could make in this country to do better and be smarter. So a lot of people don't tackle the core question. So you end up looking at this really sideline stuff. Like, can we find any racism in the schools at all? Yeah, sure, but does that actually have anything to do with why certain kids are scoring more poorly on the test? Probably not. And it's the same thing here. Professor Riley, is the is 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 one of the reasons for the lack of better research until you guys came along is one of the reasons that there's a prima facie if that's the right expression uh, antagonism towards the kinds of conclusions you're going to draw. I look at Roland Fryer. We used to cite him all the time yeah. uh, back when he was one of the first doing it. There seems to be a punitive element for oh, researching yeah. these kinds of things. There seems to be. Maybe I'm wrong. 
No, look what look what happened to the poor guy. I mean, people you don't want to say things like people came out of the woodwork and accused him of all kind of crazy crap because you don't you don't know what goes on in another person's sure, life. Right. People might not be right. a perfect gentleman behind the doors at Harvard or whatever. Right. But yes, very many people feel that if they are involved in research about a whole range of topics, um, higher levels of black crime, or for that matter, again, regional white and Hispanic crime would be nearly as controversial, although not not so much on Twitter and so on. But, I mean, IQ is something I mentioned. Yeah. A, a whole bunch of things. Uh, anything evolutionary. Are women different from men? The answer is obviously yes, but there's a huge lobby against saying so. A lot of people don't want to tackle that stuff. Mm-hmm. So you get – and it's understandable why. Mm-hmm. But you get a lot of people not testing the – I guess this is my one sentence. You get a lot of people not testing the obvious question. Right. So what What Adbu, the, the academic in Shaker Heights, said is, okay, like let's put aside the whole – race and genes debate, which I think is mostly a silly stalking horse, but let's also put aside the whole racism debate, which is what dominates the space right now, Kendi and all that, and let's actually look at how hard people work in school. Mm-hmm. And what he found is that most of the groups that are underperforming in school, on average, uh, African Americans, some regional white groups, you know, athletes, I mean, just down the line, don't spend as much time studying. And it's such an obvious conclusion that you can't help but wonder why no one had asked the question before. And then immediately the answer presents itself. I mean, that book has been around since about 2003. Everyone kind of just agrees that it's true. But I don't think that anyone has ever retested the question. And there are are multiple things like this, like, what's it, John Lott, more guns, less crime? Right, right, right. Right. Where the guy found, and now there is a challenge to this, like did he run all of his models correctly? But the guy basically found that what you'd expect, I mean, armed, legally gun-owning homeowners in a neighborhood, and I would say especially dads, if you look at some of his stuff, reduce crime. Uh-huh. A lot of people aren't going to look at that. You're, go- you're going to run a model in such a way that you find that the more guns there are in an area the more crimes there are mm-hmm. without adjusting for obvious things and actually finding that what that means is that law-abiding citizens buy guns when they live near a place that has a lot of crime. Right. And so on down the line. Like you, could, right. you could argue about this all day, but I think the pattern's pretty obvious. Um, again, I have to take one more break, and I want to be a sensitive to your time. Can I keep you one more short segment? Because I, I would love, if you have five more minutes for us, I'd love for you to address what you see sure. the sure. biggest issues that are being ignored or overwrought in the academic study of this. That is to say, is it institutional racism in police departments? Is it other social indicia, uh, family structure, economic um, economic ability, opportunity in the neighborhood? Could we take a look at that and what you found in the literature from all that when we come right back? We'll be right back with Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University, author of this great Really, one of the reasons it's great is it's understandable, (laughs) by the way. Don't be put off by the fact that it's an academic work. Professor Riley, as most of you know, writes uh, 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 in a way that's easy to understand and comprehend, which is the first indication that tells you he knows what he's talking about. Anyway, his paper, Which Police Departments Make Black Lives Matter, Which Don't, and Why Don't Most Social Scientists Care? I'm Seth Liebson. He's Wilford Riley. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I am Seth. My guest is uh, Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University. We've talked about a lot of issues with him over the years, uh, including the books Taboo, 
10 facts you can't talk about, hate crime hoax, how the left is selling fake race war. But we're here talking about a new academic paper he uh, is a co-author of, Which Police Departments Make Black Lives Matter, Which Don't, and Why Don't Most Social Scientists Care? Professor, when you look at the literature and then when you look on the ground, when you look at the facts, when you look at the... Um, when you look at the at the actual uh, you know uh, research from the ground, the uh, empirical evidence of police shootings, particularly of uh, black uh, human beings, African Americans, do you find a pattern, uh, or is it, as they say in statistics, stochastic? Is there a pattern that it happens in communities where there is some form of uh, regnant racism or systemic racism? Economic uh, issues, perhaps lack of economic opportunity, lack of police training, lack of uh, family structure, lack of education. What these these are the four or five things most people tend to try and think about. How do they relate to the actual uh, issue? Well, I think that's a really good question because it's what I describe as a multivariate question. So if I were if I were in my I don't really have a laboratory as a social scientist. If I were in my office with the two big computers and so on, and I were running a regression model, I would put all those things into it. Uh What's the level of measured bias in the community and so on. But what I find is that the things that we're supposed to blame everything on, like racism in 2020, seem very non-explanatory. I mean, just, just thinking off the top of my head, we certainly don't see more police shootings in the South than the North. I mean, I, I live in and love the South, but there's still more bias on both the black and white side here much of the time. You know, we, we certainly you can don't find more, more racism in the South, but you don't find more police shootings of unarmed blacks is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You, okay. There, you yeah. certainly don't find more of those than, say, Jackson, Mississippi, okay. with a fairly well-run small police force, heavily African-American than you do in Baltimore. Uh, that that's, that I itself mean, is fascinating. I think that that's an important point. I'm going to repeat that. Yeah. OK, sorry to get yeah, it. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it, uh, another version of the same point would be, much more dramatically, you certainly don't see more police shootings in red Republican cities than you do in blue, democratically controlled cities, generally run by black Americans or, you know, allied sort of ethnic white groups. Um, that, that's a very distinctive pattern. I mean, when you look at Baltimore, Kansas City... I mean, the, the larger Oklahoma cities, I mean, the, the places that brought up the real rear of that list, I mean, you don't generally see hardcore conservative control, uh, Los Angeles in some years. So that's that's not a pattern that we see at all. I think that the big predictors of, I mean, we, we all know what they are to some extent. I mean, one of the biggest predictors of crime and thus police encounters in a neighborhood is fatherlessness. Uh, I mean, study after study shows that, as you lose stable dads in a neighborhood for each each one percent increase in fatherlessness within you know a one square mile area or whatever it was correlates to the two percent increase in crime mm-hmm. that's a big factor you know attitudes toward the police which may have something to do with racism in the past right but really aren't too relevant today when you're looking at a one-third minority force in a lot of cities mm-hmm. I mean that that resistance to arrest which is something we have to talk young men out of I mean that correlates with these shootings. So there are a lot of things that do predict police shootings, but it, it's almost foolish to say that the the one prevalent variable is is racism. We don't see many police shootings of Asian Americans or black immigrants or something like that. And one one point that has to be made here, obviously, is that the 
the biggest predictor of police activity and thus police violence in a neighborhood is crime in that area. Right. Right. Of course. So, yeah, but th- this is something that's often almost forgotten. People, when I said your question was multivariate, yeah. people often do what I would describe as a univariate analysis as a wonk, which is where you look at one thing and one other thing, and if there's a relationship, you almost dream up an explanation as to why, usually sure. tied to, to something that we're supposed to think, if you will. So African-Americans, we're 12% of the population. We make up about 26% of those shot by police. So just the offhand kind of non-scholarly Sean King explanation is, well, that's racism. We're seeing it right in front of us. The problem, though, is, I mean, black Americans are, the big thing is we're much younger. But Mm -hmm. we're younger, we're more working class, we're more urban on average than white Americans. So we have a higher crime rate. It's nearly twice the white crime rate, more than that in the big cities. So it's meaningless to say that Group A encounters the police twice as much as Group B if Group A has twice the crime rate of Group B. So in general, where you find the police and where you find these incidents, I mean, Freddie Gray, uh, so on down the line, Tamir Rice, unfortunately, certainly Michael Brown in the Ferguson uh, housing project zone, I mean, those tend to be very high crime areas. Mm Mm-hmm. Professor, you mentioned something about the distrust of police, some of it coming from uh, some of it is, 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 is legacy. Some of it is non-existent anymore, but the narrative doesn't go away. It seems to me a casual observer here that a lot of these shootings take place in versions or variants of a, resti- of a resistance to an arrest, resisting an arrest. Uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong about that, of course. But if that is if if that is right, if I'm right about the resisting arrest is what is 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 where these things typically do happen. Is I heard Adam Carolla say this once, a podcaster I listen to from time to time, and he was saying he can in a way understand how this resistance to arrest takes place if a child is told for ten or fifteen years again and again that the police are your enemy, the police are going are out to hurt you, are out to get you, you can understand why someone would, you know, have ingrained in them the need to resist that kind of an arrest. How big of a part of all that is that, would you say? Well, I mean, it's, it's a huge component. I okay. mean, so one thing I have to say as, as a black man is there obviously is a high level of paranoia and of sort of racial anger in the black community. Sure. And I mean, you, you also see this to some extent in immigrant communities. Yes, I mean, sure. I live in Appalachia Absol- Absolutely. You see it yeah, in Phoenix all the time with the uh, immigrant sure. community here. Absolutely. I know yeah. what you mean. No. Yeah. I mean, see, this is, this isn't something that's unique to black people. Right. I live in Appalachia. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, crime and resentment of outsiders, this is an area that's, where that's not unknown. Sure. But I guess the point I'm making is it's not that I'm sympathetic to all three groups. It's that to some extent, even if that has roots in the past, that, that has to be overcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, paranoid beliefs. I mean, if you're comparing the police in America to the police in a Latin American country, or if you as an African-American man, you're a little older and you're comparing the police now to the police in the South in the 60s. Right you're actually making a, a completely invalid comparison. And we need to we need to stop treating that as valid, I think. I mean, and we... So there's a statistic... That there are outdated mind. prejudices, and there are outdated prejudices, in other words. Sure. And yeah. I, yeah, again, yeah. All, all sides. All On but, all sides, but, right. Yeah. But these, ha- these, just like the equivalents among the whites that used to fight with these guys, need to be treated as wrong rather than being excused as, oh, what could they do? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the Skeptic Research Center, good sort of libertarian think tank, recently asked a bunch of urban blacks and urban white liberals how many unarmed black men they think are killed by the police in a typical year. And the average answer from both groups was between, so these are like kind of white, you know, scenester city kids and then black kids that lived in the same areas or mostly black areas. And the response from both groups was between 1,000 and 10,000 unarmed black kids, black people, are killed in a typical year by the police. Both sides because, off by a factor of about a thousand. Yeah, by like a, a 10, minimum, minimum, yeah, percent, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's wow. just these ideas are very, very prevalent, and they do lead to this panic. I've had like young black women I've gone on dates with or buddies at the gym talk about this. Like, what do I do with them? A cop pulls it behind me, and it's sort of like from my perspective as a guy who crunches these numbers, like, well, get your insurance ready because you're gonna get a thirty dollar <laughs> ticket. You know, like, come on, man, <laughs> yeah, enough right. of this. We're not at war anymore. <laughs> right. But like this. But these ideas, they're, they're, they are very prevalent. Yeah. And so the, the we're not at war anymore message needs to get as much Good. shine as the Ben Crump, there's a genocide going on yeah. message. Perfect. And until that happens, resisting arrest is a huge problem. Yeah. Like if you're a cop and someone Michael Brown's size plays a football 6'6", six, six, yeah. is attacking you because he thinks you're trying to kill him, I mean, you're, yeah. you're in a fight for your life. You I bet. mean, it, that's an unfortunate situation, but I, I do want the officer to go home there. Professor Riley, you are a gift uh, to social science, to this show, and to uh, all intellectual academic pursuits. I am so glad uh, that you have uh, put your uh, brain to uh, this uh, study and this paper. I'm equally grateful to uh, your relationship to this show, really, and audience. Appreciate you very, very much, sir. Appreciate you, too. And as always, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your great work. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 508 0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking for a unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and it's run by great people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can be too. They're offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio, all in a business that helps people doing their best to dig out of debt by actually helping them dig out of debt by actually paying their debts off. Seeing such things as even massive repair to their FICO scores. You can check out Y-Refi by checking them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. They're a local company. You can visit them. You will not get a sales pitch. They're just happy to talk about what it is that they do, and you will be happy to hear about it and interested, I know. Again, investyrefi.com. Joe Biden has uh, concluded his uh, speech tonight, his address to the nation on, uh, on, um, on, on gun reform, uh, uh, weapons bans, and the like. And, uh, you know... I caught portions of it, enough to see his anger and vitriol and condemnation of Republicans and enough to see him invoking uh, the name of God several times, as in, for God's sakes, uh, as if his hyped-up rhetoric will encourage more of a bipartisan solution. Um, There is not just one way to tackle the problem of violence in America. 
there are many. It is as uh, to use the phraseology of uh, of Wilfred Riley, our previous guest. It's a multivariate approach, and it's not just one thing. The Democrats want to talk about just one thing, and they want to hammer the heads of Republicans if they're not on board with looking at that one thing exclusively. There has been some research of late that if we're trying to measure how divided we are as a country, we are more divided now than we were three years ago. We are more divided now under a president who in his inaugural address said, we will write an American story of hope, not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, an American story of decency and dignity, of love and of healing, of greatness and of goodness. Uh, Find me the speech he's given on a major issue any time recently where he hasn't made it a divisive issue, where he hasn't made it a partisan issue, where he hasn't made the issue a club over which to batter Republicans over the head with. I mean, we can talk about it on this issue as much as we can talk about it on election reform. On this issue, um, he's, he's going full throttle just as he did on election reform. And when Republicans weren't so sure that federalizing elections was such a great idea, and he called us... Uh, out as being on the side of Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis, the side of his party in the past, and perhaps intellectually still there. You know, if we are divided, there is a way to get through this division, and that is to find solutions that both sides, all sides, can get on board with. And it starts, Mr. Biden, with not demonizing the people you need for your votes or not ignoring what they have to say about it, too. Because you know what? They, you, me, we, we're not idiots. And you know what? We might even be a little bit smarter than he is. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Yeah, I love those Cool Touch folks. If uh, you just heard that ad, I really do. Chris Funk and the team, I've used them. For, uh, I think, everything they offer, <laughs> air conditioning, heating, and plumbing. They're experts at all, and uh, they're just good, honest people. And it's a company that actually, you know, when you call them, they're there to fix your problem. They're not there to upsell you on things you don't need. And, and, they're, and they're hugely friendly, and they're hugely um, successful at what they do. They're well, well qualified. <laughs> I love these people, and I've recommended them to other friends who needed air conditioning, repair services, plumbing services, they all love them equally so. 17 years in business, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, never received a complaint from the ROC. It's the company I use, Cool Touch. Check them out if you need them at 623-734-1932 or online at cooltouchac.com. Big uh, political news in Arizona is that in our uh, somewhat crowded, yeah, I think that's fair to say, somewhat crowded uh, Republican primary for the race of the U.S. Senate, the race to replace Mark Kelly, Donald Trump today announced, former President Donald Trump today announced his endorsement of a candidate, uh, and that candidate is Blake Masters. Question for the audience. Uh, I'm really very curious about this. Victor Davis Hanson has a current piece up 
on the value of the Trump endorsement. How valuable is it? He raises a few interesting questions. He um, he, he and, and he's not so sure Donald Trump himself is going to run. I'd love to know if you think Donald Trump is going to run for president. He said he won't make that announcement till after the midterms. Hansen says he would be 79. The recent record of doddering septuagenarian and octogenarian politicians like Biden, Pelosi and Feinstein has warned American warned Americans that one's late 70s certainly are not as the baby baby boomer generation may try to hype the new 50s. It's just not. Of course, Donald Trump is uniquely energetic at his age as well. But there are some other factors that may keep him from running. And the question of his endorsement, how much will it sway your vote? How much were you waiting to see who Donald Trump endorsed in that campaign or in any campaign? I'd love to know. Um, Let me give you this sentence from Victor Davis Hanson. It's kind of interesting. An otherwise nihilist progressive and media agenda would reawaken solely to destroy the Trump family if Donald Trump were to run again. Not his policies, against which the left has nothing to offer, at least nothing of substance. But, as Wolf, as uh, Victor Davis Hanson puts it, this interesting sentence, the Trump MAGA legacy is now largely institutionalized. That is to say, even those who don't receive the Trump endorsement seem to speak as American Firsters or MAGA Republicans. My question to you, how important in you making your decision is the Trump endorsement for a political candidate? 602-508-0960. I'm Seth Leibson, and we will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 